BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Is America ready for a lawless president? This is what we have now, is a president who has asserted in federal court now, in two different cases and situations, one involving his taxes and the other involving the grand jury testimony that was incorporated into the Mueller report and that formed the foundation for the Mueller report. In both cases, he said he can't be investigated, he doesn't have to turn things over, he doesn't have an obligation to Congress, etc. And I'd like to point out that uh, Andrew Jackson, President Andrew Jackson, whose picture hangs next to Trump's desk in the Oval Office, the slave owner, arguably one of our worst presidents, Andrew Jackson defied the Supreme Court twice when Chief Justice John Marshall of the Supreme Court said you may not relocate the Cherokees to Oklahoma, the Trail of Tears, and slaughter thousands of them in the process, he said basically Supreme Court Justice Marshall has made his ruling, let him enforce it. You've got Donald Trump saying that he's not accountable to the Constitution. That the Democrats, they haven't held a vote in the House of Representatives, so we're going to ignore everything. Well, they're not even saying, he's not even now saying, you know, if they have a vote, I'll cooperate. He's just saying no. And so what happens when you have a constitutional crisis like this? My understanding of how this sort of thing typically plays out is when you have a dispute between the executive branch, the president, and his Department of Justice and whatnot, between the executive branch and the legislative branch, and in this case, the House of Representatives being led by Nancy Pelosi. When you have a dispute between those two branches of government, the agency, as it were, that adjudicates that dispute, that determines you know, who wins and who loses in that dispute, is the Supreme Court. And in fact, that's what happened in Nixon v. U.S. back in 1974. That's what happened in, was it Starr versus Clinton? I forget the, the exact name of the Supreme Court case where Bill Clinton was sued Maybe it was Jones v. Clinton by Paula Jones, which kind of started that whole thing, you'll recall. And the Supreme Court said, yes, he can be deposed in a civil lawsuit. And it was in that deposition where Monica Lewinsky was brought up and he lied about it under oath. And that was what led to his impeachment. But the point is that, you know, the court has intervened in these disputes between the legislative and executive branches twice with regard to impeachment. So let's say that the Democrats go to the Supreme Court and say, you need to tell Trump that he needs to turn over these documents and he needs to allow people who have worked for him 
to testify before Congress. If it has to do with top secret stuff, we can do it in secret session. But if not, it's going to be in public. You, Supreme Court, need to tell Trump and the executive branch to cooperate with an impeachment inquiry because it is mandated by the Constitution. Now, one of two things could happen. One would be that the Supreme Court, a purely partisan move in a five to four decision, would say, yeah, yeah, Trump doesn't have to do that. You haven't yet made a strong enough case. Or maybe even, you know, we now disagree with the way that we ruled in the late 90s. I think it was 98 in Jones v. Clinton and in 74 in U.S. v. Nixon. We now disagree with our predecessors' decisions. They could do that. Or alternatively, they could say, okay, Trump, you've got to turn this stuff over and you've got to send your people to testify before Congress. That's our ruling. Now, if the first thing happens, I'm not sure how this plays out. We already have a confession from Trump that he basically said to the president of Ukraine, you give me dirt on Joe Biden, I'll give you weapons to protect yourself against you know, Russia going beyond Crimea or beyond the Donbass, the eastern part of Ukraine, where there's you know, a, a lot of apparently Russian occupation forces or, or irregulars anyway. So we've got that. I mean, you know, arguably he could be impeached right now with nothing more. So that would be one way that that plays out. But the alternative, the thing that really concerns me, the one that I think we all really need to pay attention to, is if the Supreme Court says to Trump, you have to turn this stuff over, and Trump says no, what then? This has happened three times in our history. Twice with Andrew Jackson, once with Abraham Lincoln. In Lincoln's case, the Supreme Court in Dred Scott, Roger Taney was the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court in 1856, which was four years before Lincoln ran for president, five years before he was inaugurated. But nonetheless, in that decision, the Supreme Court said that people of African ancestry, regardless of what state that they were in, were property, not persons. And Abraham Lincoln, when he became president, he said, I'm going to ignore the Supreme Court. But more to the point here is what happened in Andrew Jackson's presidency. Andrew Jackson was a slaveholder. Andrew Jackson was a Southerner. Andrew Jackson is the guy whose picture hangs in Trump's office. Andrew Jackson was the guy who was going to be taken off the $20 bill and replaced by Harriet Tubman, as I recall. And Trump put a stop to that. It's supposed to happen last year, I think. Trump and Mnuchin. But Andrew Jackson most famously is the guy who, when the Supreme Court said, you know, Jackson said, we're going to take all these Cherokees in Georgia and we're going to turn their land over to plantation owners and slaveholders, you know, turn this into plantations and grow cotton. We're going to kick out the Cherokees and we're going to march them all the way over to Oklahoma. When Andrew Jackson said he was going to do that, you know, he got sued. And it went to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court said, no, you can't do that. And there's not an actual document that actually quotes Jackson as saying this, but there are numerous people from the time who quoted him saying it, where he said, okay, uh, you know, Chief Justice Marshall has made his decision. Let him enforce it. And there is the problem. The Supreme Court has no enforcement mechanism outside of the executive branch. The executive branch is where all the police powers reside. And the one thing that has prevented the executive branch from rising up 
that is the president, from a, a president in the past, from rising up and becoming a dictator has been, frankly, goodwill, a belief in, American, in the American Republic. Back when Franklin Roosevelt was pushing through legislation for his New Deal, he did a few things by executive order, and Republicans were saying, oh, my God, he's turning into a dictator. Well, he didn't. He respected the rule of law. The same thing was said about, you know, Lyndon Johnson with the Great Society. The same thing was said, frankly, about George W. Bush and Dick Cheney with their illegal wars and their torture and stuff. But they didn't go so far, arguably, <laughs> they didn't go so far as to say to Congress, no, you can't have this. Although, you know, the CIA, which is part of the executive branch, did destroy all those videotapes of the torture that the U.S. engaged in that was sanctioned within the Bush White House by Jay Bybee, by John Yoo, and by Brett Kavanaugh, the lawyers who were working for George W. Bush at that time. But if Donald Trump says, no, I'm not going to do what the Supreme Court tells me to do, period, full stop, nah, nah, go ahead and make me, I dare you. If he does that, if he says that, then we have, we've, we've walked off the edge of the cliff for the first time in our history. You know, Jackson's defiance of the, civil, of the Supreme Court was, didn't have to do with impeachment, didn't have to do with high crimes and misdemeanors. It had to do with relatively small things. The first was the, the Trail of Tears. The second was the Second National Bank. The Supreme Court said, you can't, you can't shut the bank down. Jackson went ahead and did it anyway. But these were not things that shook the nation. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archive. But if Trump pulls an Andrew Jackson here, and I'm fully expecting he will, we have to prepare for, you know, a, a serious constitutional crisis. Boy, so much stuff here. Just a few stories that I wanted to share with you that I think are, you know, quite consequential and quite important. Betsy DeVos. I mean, it's amazing how Donald Trump's insanity manages to push right off the headlines, right out of the front page, right out of the news cycle. The stuff is really going on in his administration. A federal judge has pointed out that Betsy DeVos has violated his order 16,000 times. I mean, this is a person who has the power to send Betsy DeVos to prison. It's Judge Sally Kim, and she lifted a stay on a class action lawsuit on behalf of Corinthian College borrowers. Now, these are people who had borrowed money to get into a for-profit college, and then it turns out the for-profit college was a scam. The owners of the college walked away with the money, bankrupted the college, and the people were stuck with the loans. And under Obama administration policies, people who get stuck in a situation like that can apply to the federal government to basically have the federal government pay off their loans or cancel their loans, depending on who had guaranteed the loan, whether it's federally or, you know, or not. And what's happened is that people are applying to have this happen, to have this done, to have this fixed. And according to the Project on Predatory Student Lending and Housing and Economic Rights Advocates, HERA, the federal government, under orders of Betsy DeVos, the Department of Education, is saying, nah, we're not going to do that. We're not going to help you out. Sorry. Nya, nya. So this 
PredatorySTudentLending.org issued this news release. And uh, they're asking that Betsy DeVos be held in contempt and face sanctions. They say that the department admitted it had illegally continued to collect the loans. In other words, they're still, they're not just wiping out the debt, they're still demanding that these students who got ripped off by this for-profit college continue to pay. I mean, this is amazing. Judge Kim said, quote, there have to be consequences for violation of my order 16,000 times. And in fact, 16,034 students are the number who were victims of this, you know, much like Trump University, this is another fraudulent for-profit college scam. And 16,034 times, or 16,034 students have received notices from Betsy DeVos's Department of Education or agencies therein saying, you need to pay these loans to these, uh, you know, rich banksters who are big donors to the Republican Party. You need to pay these loans. Even though federal policy is, you know, if you got ripped off by one of these for-profit corporations and, and the fat cat Republican donor guys who set it up just moved on, declare corporate bankruptcy and move on like Donald Trump has done six times. Uh, if that happens, you know, we've got your back. We the government. Well, it turns out we don't so much have your back. That's amazing. Until last year, I'd never endorsed a weight loss product, but I decided to change that after reading about university research into a molecule in olive oil that regulates appetite. My wife convinced me there was one that was worth sharing, and well, after a year, I have to say she was right. Louise said once her appetite and cravings were under control, losing weight was easy, and she's kept it off. My producer, Sean, was so impressed with Louise's results that she's trying Ridgizone, too. Sean wants to lose a little weight before the holidays, and she says Ridgizone is the easiest diet supplement she's ever tried. One capsule with breakfast, and that's it. No jitters, no hunger, no wild food cravings. Sean says meals are no longer a battle not to overeat. She feels full faster and has reduced portion sizes accordingly. She also says she, no longer, she, she feels full longer, so no more grazing between meals, either. The only ingredient in Ridgizone occurs naturally in the body and is completely non-stimulant. And that appealed to both Louise and Sean. Listen, if you're looking to lose weight this season, I strongly suggest you give non-prescription Ridgizone a try. Use the promo code TOM, T-H-O-M, and receive up to 65% off plus free shipping. Go to Ridgizone.com. It's R-I-D-U-Z-O-N-E, R-I-D-U-Zone.com, Ridgizone.com. Promo code TOM at Ridgizone.com. On the line with us is Mark Carlin, my old buddy, and has brought back to life BuzzFlash.com, which has for, geez, well over a decade, maybe multiple decades, been a really consequential progressive <laughs> website and source of news, BuzzFlash.com, and his Twitter handle is at BuzzFlash. Mark, welcome back to the program. It's been a while. It's been a, an absolute pleasure to be back. Thank you. You wrote an op-ed that people can find over at buzzflash.com suggesting that there are clues hiding in plain sight. For example, the Justice Department refusing to say that they will preserve documents that Congress has asked them to preserve that 
what we might be seeing here being played out is what Roger Stone famously advised Richard Nixon to do. Nixon decided to do what was legal and right and preserve the White House tapes. Roger Stone suggested that he should have burned them. And I think in retrospect, had he burned them, he, he may have survived that impeachment. You're suggesting that Donald Trump might be doing the same thing, basically burning the tapes? Exactly. As a matter of fact, there was a political story in 2018 that, as many things Trumpian, almost unbelievable, but that Trump regularly tears up documents, correspondence, official memos. And this is in the political article, so it's not some sort of conspiracy theory, but there are actually two or three civil servants who are in the executive office building are paid more than $60,000 a year to reassemble the documents that Trump tears up with scotch tape. Now, I read that like two years ago, and I'm wondering if Trump read that and if he's put an end to that. If either, I don't think he's put an end to that. In fact, what I document in my commentary is there's something called the Presidential Records Act, and that requires that certain documents be maintained for uh, storage in an ongoing presidential archive. Uh, this is particularly applicable to meetings with foreign leaders or phone calls. And in May of this year, three watchdog groups, this is before the infamous July 25th Zelensky call, filed suit against the Trump administration for not complying with the Presidential Records Act and indeed not even keeping a record of meetings and calls that he had with some foreign leaders, specifically several meetings and calls with uh, Putin. And the case is winding its way through the courts, but last week the judge who's overseeing it, Amy Berman Jackson, in a federal district court in Washington, uh, ordered the White House to preserve documents and to preserve records of those, of meetings with, uh, and phone calls with foreign leaders. Um, I think these ethics groups are seeking an injunction that would have an enforceable mechanism because the judge says to Trump, you have to do this, you have to keep records. But as we know from the whistleblower, many of these records, um, if they are kept at all of phone calls with foreign leaders that are are meetings that are questionable go into top secret server. One meeting that I'm sure you have made mention of on your program is a a 2017 meeting that Trump had in the Oval Office with two very high-ranking Russian officials in which, according to the Washington Post, a leaker told them that Trump told these Russian officials not to worry about their meddling in the 2016 election because even the U.S. meddles in other people's elections. Uh, We don't have a record, a transcript of that meeting, and that is required by the Presidential Records Act. 
And clearly Trump is not complying. This is, goes to the very essence of the whistleblower's point about the Zelensky call being the full transcript being kept on a classified server. So the peril that Trump may indeed delete these records is extremely high. So what, I mean, basically the court of last resort here in a dispute between the legislative and executive branch. In other words, if Congress says we want these records and Trump says you can't have them or even says I've destroyed them, nah, nah, it goes to the Supreme Court. And if the Supreme Court rules and God only knows what's going to happen there because you got, you know, two Trump appointees and a 5-4 majority. But even if the court rules against Donald Trump, Trump's hero in terms of presidents is Andrew Jackson. Andrew Jackson's picture hangs right next to his desk, the Resolute desk in the Oval Office. Andrew Jackson was going to be taken off the $20 bill and replaced by Harriet Tubman, and Donald Trump and Stephen Mnuchin put a stop to that. And what happened when the Supreme Court, when Andrew Jackson was sued over the Trail of Tears, over relocating Cherokees from Georgia to Oklahoma, the Supreme Court said, no, you can't do that. And Andrew Jackson is said to have said, well, you know, Chief Justice Marshall has made his decision. Let him enforce it. And the Supreme Court has no enforcement mechanism outside of turning to the executive branch, to the president, and saying, please enforce the law. And if it's the president who's violating the law, what do we do, Mark? Well, we are in jeopardy. I mean, this is what he's doing in terms of the letter that was sent to Congress. He's basically declaring war on the Constitution, the constitutional role of Congress to launch an impeachment inquiry and to proceed with impeachment if it's warranted. And provide oversight. So he is. He's saying he is above the law, and Nixon said that, but he ultimately complied once the, uh, I think it was a guy named Alexander Butterfield, if I recall. He, in congressional testimony, made a stunning remark that there was a tape system in the White House, and it was that which led to, as you mentioned, Nixon turning over the tapes. There was an infamous 18-and-a-half-minute gap in one of the key tapes, and I think that's what we're seeing with Trump. He's still referring to the Zelensky phone call he he said a few days back that it was a verbatim transcript down to every comma. And we know from the whistleblower that that's not true, but it throws the press off in several CNN articles, and even in the Washington Post, I've still seen it referred to as a transcript. Right. When it first came out, I pointed out on this program that there were three places where there were ellipses, dot, 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 which means something has been deleted. And that if you read the transcript out loud, or the summary out loud, it comes to 11 minutes, but according to the timestamp, it was a 30-minute conversation. Obviously, there's a bunch of stuff that's been deleted from that. I guess this gets back to this question of, you know, what do we do? How do we do this? And it seems to me that Congress needs to move, uh, you know, really rapidly to impeach this guy because I don't think he's going to be held to account by any other mechanism. Do you know of any, Mark? I think that Trump has established that he is hunkering down in the White House and that will take a dumpster truck to remove him. The only enforcement mechanism is Congress. I think these watchdog groups have been seeking since May to basically have an injunction issued by the judge that would appoint 
an overseer outside the White House to make sure that they're complying with the Presidential Records Act and that Trump would, and he still hasn't accounted for these meetings with Putin. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot that we need to know. Mark Carlin, the uh, website buzzflash.com, a great place to get your news. And of course, Mark's uh, brilliant, often extraordinarily insightful commentaries every day. Mark, thanks a lot for dropping by. Thank you, Tom. It's a pleasure. Great talking with you. Josh Chaffetz, who is the author of uh, Congress's Constitution, writes in the New York Times, the House can play hardball, too. It can arrest Giuliani. He points out refusal to comply with a duly authorized subpoena from Congress constitutes contempt of Congress, which is a federal crime. Now, the federal prosecutors working for Bill Barr will not enforce that. But he says, and I quote, the House should instead put back on the table the option of using its sergeant at arms to arrest contemnors, which is the, the old fashioned word for somebody in contempt of Congress, especially when an individual like Rudy Giuliani is not an executive branch official. Neither House of Congress has arrested anyone since 1935, but it was not uncommon before that point and was blessed by the Supreme Court in 1927. On at least two occasions, the second in 2016, the House of Congress had its sergeant arrest an executive branch official. Well, that's interesting. So instead of writing nasty letters, he says a makeshift holding cell could be created if necessary. So he says that would be explosive and shouldn't be undertaken lightly. Another one is the power of the purse. He suggests that uh, the, you know, the, the government's only funded through November 21st right now. And so all Congress would have to do is write a, an appropriation bill that zeroes out funding for the White House Counsel's Office, saying this guy, you know, the White House Counsel is offering bad advice, and therefore we're not going to pay for it. Meanwhile, two buddies of uh, Rudy Giuliani's have been busted on campaign finance charges. That's interesting. If we're going to start enforcing the campaign finance laws, there's going to be a whole bunch of people who are going to be in big trouble. So... Anyhow, let's pick up some of your phone calls here. Uh, Bill in St. Helens, Oregon. Hey, Bill, what's up? Tom, we have a man, a president that's basically ignoring all the laws of our country anytime they're inconvenient. Now he's basically yes. ignoring the Constitution. Yes. That's disturbing enough, but what's twice tripled, you know, infinitely more disturbing is the amount of support he's getting from top Republican leaders. So let's be clear and let's start using these words. At a minimum, this is sedition. We should be hearing that word every day in every conversation. At a minimum, this man in the Republican Party is engaging in sedition. I personally am waiting for them to burn the rice stack. Can you define sedition for me? Yes, undermining, actively undermining. And by the way, we've had this conversation. You like to say it has to involve violence. No, it does not. They're undermining the laws of this country. They're actually advocating not to follow the laws of the right. United no, States. No, I've never that argued that sedition has to require violence. I, you know, One time you were saying, well, well maybe I did. It has I, some you know, violence. Okay, yeah. I stand corrected then, Bill. Uh, yeah. The second thing is I truly believe this is a slow-moving coup. I do. Mm -hmm. when they, you know, I, I posted a thing on Facebook yesterday saying Trump doesn't get that when there are no rules, there are no rules. And right. this is the road we're heading down, where there are no rules. It is going to be anarchy, and it's going to be anarchy at the highest levels of our government. I'm terrified. I Hopefully you're terrified. Hopefully your listeners are terrified. What's going on here is just unacceptable. This needs to be put down, and it needs to be put down now. And if it's not put down by the House or the Congress or the Senate, the American people need to start taking to the streets and saying, unacceptable, get the hell out. 
who yeah. are not representing our country. Yeah, I agree. I mean, yeah, I Trump is calling about is calling the impeachment investigation a coup. And what I posted on Facebook, I said, if this is how Trump plays this out, in other words, if he were to ignore the Supreme Court, then there has indeed been a coup. But it will have been a coup by the president and his cronies, not by Congress or the Democrats. And I'm with you, Bill. Exactly. I'm absolutely with you. Thank you very much for the call. Morris in Long Beach, California. Hey, Morris, what's up? Yeah, Professor, I was talking to brother-in-law the other day, and he's a friend of the sergeant of arms, right? For he the U.S. Capitol? That, yeah, uh-huh. yeah. And he was saying that they're looking for a general contractor. They need somebody to remodel the house holding cell, uh-huh. the urinals and the stalls. Oh, interesting. Because uh, they usually get the storage right now. So if you are in the Washington area... You might want to contact uh, them folks because they're going to be doing some remodeling. That's interesting. And uh, by the way, if you're going to impeach Donald Trump, it's at 51%. You want to get it to 65 Remember this guy, President Johnson, one of the articles of impeachment against him was that he was dividing the country. Remember that, Professor? That's right. I know you know. That's right. But he was That's dividing right. the country, and there's absolutely no one, absolutely no one, evangelical, Black Panther, that would deny, yeah, this food undivided us. So make them one of your articles. And, and I was lying. I ain't got no brother-in-law. I'm just being funny. Oh, okay. uh, but, but I'm telling you right now, uh, <laughs> I'm too me. far off, am I? No. And the holding cell in the basement of the Capitol building right now is actually being used as a storage shed and uh, it's uh, Lincoln's hearse is in it, you know, or the hearse that carried Lincoln's body in the funeral procession right after his assassination. Fascinating. Morris, Thank thanks a lot for the call. Good talking with you. Mike in Dayton, Ohio. Hey, Mike, what's on your mind today? Yes, I'm calling about an interview that I read the transcript of in the Washington Post. I think it was Adam Schiff was interviewed right after I guess right after Sondland stonewalled and said he wouldn't appear. And I thought it was enlightening what it said about his impeachment strategy, Adam Schiff's impeachment strategy. It seems like he's saying the House can go ahead and, and issue articles of impeachment and all this obstruction is not going to tie up the impeachment. It's going to tie up the trial in the Senate, which seems to me would be a way that would backfire on the Republicans. I mean, you're doing all this obstruction. Yeah, let me let me lay out what I think what I think you're saying, Mike, and you can tell me if I've got this right. That because I didn't read that interview with Schiff, but but I but it sounds to me like what you're arguing is, is say Trump is withholding certain documents that might implicate him or even exonerate him, but he's just withholding the documents or he's withholding testimony from Congress. Congress can still, you know, the House of Representatives can still go ahead and issue articles of impeachment and simply throw all that under the rubric of obstruction of justice because an impeachment is nothing more than an indictment. It's the initial charge. But then you go into the courtroom and then you have to actually present the evidence. And when the evidence is subpoenaed, you actually have to bring forward the evidence and all that kind of stuff. And so the result of that is that they're going to have to, when they get to the Senate, they're going to have to start presenting this stuff. Is that your point? Exactly. What it tells me is what they're actually doing is not obstructing impeachment. They're obstructing the Senate. But exoneration, if that's where the Senate's headed, right. to me that seems like they're shooting themselves in the foot. Well, it, it depends on how, how comprehensive and how complete it is. I, I think that there's a lot of truth to Roger Stone's advice to Richard Nixon that he should burn the tapes rather than turn them over to Congress. 
Nixon had already given Congress transcripts of what was in the tapes, but they were heavily redacted, just like, you know, Bill Barr and the, and the Mueller report. And it wasn't until Congress got the actual tapes that they found the smoking gun. So uh, I'm guessing that Roger Stone, who's still advising Donald Trump, as far as we all know, is telling Trump, you know, burn that stuff. It's, if you've got it in a secure server, nuke it, take it out, you know, destroy it, have your people ruin it and don't turn anything over to the House. So. If Trump's obstruction of justice continues, yes, the House will impeach him for it. I think the House is probably going to impeach him no matter what. He's committed so many obvious crimes in this thing with Ukraine is just, you know, beyond the pale and we have the confession and we have the transcript. But when it gets to the Senate, that's where it's going to get real interesting. And that's where a lot of this is going to depend on how John Roberts behaves. John Roberts was, uh, when William Rehnquist was the Chief Justice and sat as the judge presiding over the trial in the Senate of Bill Clinton. His law clerk at that time was John Roberts, who is you know, now the, 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 the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court and thus will preside over the trial in the Senate. So a lot of this is gonna have to do with how Roberts rules when the prosecution essentially comes forward and says, we are still lacking evidence from the Trump administration and whether, you know, which, whether Roberts is going to be partisan or whether he's going to be down the middle. It's going to get real interesting. Mike, that's a brilliant point. Thanks for bringing it up. I appreciate it. Louise and I have discovered recently the powerful health benefits of CBD oil. We've been using New Leaf Natural CBD oil for a few months and love it. CBD oil is non-intoxicating, which makes it great for people who want the health benefits of cannabinoids without the without getting high, frankly. Uh, CBD is non-toxic and has potent pain-relieving and anti-inflammatory properties. And the brand we trust the most is New Leaf Naturals. New Leaf Naturals is the highest quality CBD oil on the market. It's 100% organic, highly concentrated, contains no additional additives, is grown in the USA, and the only ingredient is hemp. So the product remains in its most pure and simple form. Go to newleafnaturals.com. It's N-U-Leafnaturals.com and get 30% off and free shipping in the U.S. when you use the code TOM, spelled T-H-O-M. Go to nuleafnaturals.com. For premium cannabinoid wellness, there's only one place, nuleafnaturals.com. Go to nuleafnaturals.com. That's nuleafnaturals.com. Tim in Houston, Texas. Hey, Tim, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. Thanks for taking the call. My pleasure. I was watching Jink Uger on the Young Kirks last night, and he was saying that during Bernie's hospitalization, he came up with a put the finishing touches to a new proposal for campaign finance reform. I was wondering if you had been alerted to that and whether you had knew about it and whether you would have any comments on it. I have heard about it. I don't know the details of it. It has uh -huh. been reported in the media. I haven't had a chance to dig into it. But Bernie comes on this program with some regularity. It seems like he's on about once a month these days while he's running for president. So certainly the next time he drops by, I'll ask him about it. Okay. Well, I was going to tie that to how people are so mad at mm -hmm. You know, the yeah. political types and allowing the plutocrats to take advantage of us since 
they assassinated JFK in 63. you have any comments along those lines? And well, whether that wanna, yeah, anger yeah. is going to get transferred into real political action that brings us back to, I know you keep saying that, you know, you, you can't have self-pity. You, you can't just sit back and do nothing. But yeah, no, there's no what, room what for do you, despair What do you here. think the odds are that we're ever going to get to a, back to a reasonable... I think it's going to take a crisis, Tim, and thank you for asking the question. And, and in fact, I wrote a book about this called The Crash of 2016, which is now out of print, because uh, 2016 is gone and the crash didn't happen. I would say it did happen, actually, and they've been kind of holding it back by pouring cheap money in. But the point of the book was how, how political cycles happen and how change happens and how crisis produces change. And, and sometimes that gets interrupted. We had three political assassinations in the 60s, between 63 and 67, Martin Luther King, John Kennedy, and Robert Kennedy, that did serious damage to the progressive movement of that time. And, uh, you know, God forbid we should go back to that kind of an era. You know, we need to learn from those experiences. But the, I think the main lesson that I've learned in the years since then is that the idea that some grand leader is going to save us, the salvationistic thinking that seems to come out of monotheistic religions, particularly Christianity, that some perfect divine person is going to come down from the sky and save us, whether that person is Bernie or Elizabeth Warren, or whether if, you know, for the right that person was Donald Trump, or whether it's another FDR or whatever, that we have to set that aside. That's, that's, uh, that's magical thinking, that we need to be saving ourselves that we need to be uh, in the streets and we need to be in the voting booths. And, and we need to be talking to our representatives loudly right now. Their te telephone number is 202-224-3121. We need to be talking to our elected representatives and telling them that we want clean elections, we want fair and safe elections, we want honesty and political advertising, which we're not getting from Trump right now, and we need it now. Hey, we just put up a new video for supporters of our program. You can find it over at TomHartman.com. Uh, talking about the relationship between uh, Fox News, Rupert Murdoch, and uh, basically the whole right-wing hate agenda on, on Hispanics, by and large, saying that Hispanics are changing our culture. Really? Uh, this is European culture. I mean, you know, the, the Mayans and Aztecs got replaced by the Spaniards, remember? Uh, they're mostly mostly Catholic. Uh, I, I don't see the the cultural difference here, but Fox sure does. And 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 also pointing out that Kevin Rudd, the former Prime Minister of Australia, calls out Rupert Murdoch and says, you know, he's he's quote a cancer on Australian democracy. Well, apparently a cancer on American democracy as well. So you can check out this new video over at TomHartman.com. It's just available to people who are you know, members of, supporters of our program. Okay, Donald Trump going totally lawless. And now you've got Lindsey Graham and Trey Gowdy, even a senator, a member of the House, a former member of the House. No, I think Gowdy's still a member of the House, isn't he? Yeah. Um, 
You've got these guys who, when the Bill Clinton impeachment was going on, saying, the White House must present these records. You have no choice. This is the rule of law. And now they're defending Donald Trump, going, he doesn't have to give you any records. The Republican Party is so hypocritical because basically they owe their allegiance, they owe their loyalty to one source, money, mammon. They have chosen money over everything else, whether it's big corporations or, or billionaires. This is who the Republican Party serves, full stop. For 15, 16 years on this program, I've had a contest going. It's continuing today. I will send you an autographed copy of, of one of my books. And, uh, you know, if I've got enough copies, you can pick the one you want. There are a few that I only have one or two copies of. But, but in any case, I'll, get, I'll send you an autographed copy of one of my books if you can name one piece of legislation in the last 30 years, since, since Ronald Reagan became president, in the last nearly 40 years, one piece of legislation that was proposed by Republicans, passed with a majority of Republicans, signed by a Republican president, whose principal beneficiary, or the principal beneficiary of that legislation, was average working Americans. If you can find one piece of legislation that was passed by Republicans that accomplishes that, I will send you a book. And I'm just telling you, you won't be able to do it. Nobody's done it in 15 years, and it's not going to happen now. This is how bad it is, and these guys are totally sold out. And now you've got an oligarch running a news organization, uh, uh, Rupert Murdoch, now his son Lachlan running Fox News, Kevin Rudd who was the Prime Minister of Australia, wrote a piece for the Sydney Morning Herald titled, Murdoch is the cancer at the heart of Australian democracy. And he talks about how Rupert Murdoch owns more than half the media in Australia. And he has flipped Australian democracy on its head and turned and, and, and helped right-wingers take over Australia politically. Then he moved to the United Kingdom, did the same thing with Maggie Thatcher and and the whole right-wing revolution there in the UK, uh, right up to Brexit, you know, and, and owns now the Times of London and the Sun and the Star and Sky TV network, which is beaming right-wing stuff now into Poland and into Hungary and into other, you know, into Turkey and into other countries where now we've got right-wing strongmen, leaders, presidents, whatever you want to call them, into, into the Philippines, Duterte. And then he comes to the United States and, and buys the New York Post and buys the Wall Street Journal and starts Fox News and is poisoning the minds of Americans. This was, what, this was the assertion of the former prime minister of Australia. Richard Nixon didn't have that. He didn't have a right-wing billionaire owning the media. He didn't have uh, hundreds, hun literally, hundred, literally thousands of radio stations owned by three billionaire oligarchs. He didn't have a television network, over 200 television stations owned by a billionaire oligarchic family. Donald Trump has all those things, which means that the bar is so much higher now than it was for Nixon, for example, or, or Bill Clinton, the impeachment, because there is this giant echo chamber, and not to mention all of these right-wing websites that are so well-funded, and now they've even got their tentacles into Facebook and Google but in particular into Facebook now, with Facebook taking this Republican, this uh, Trump ad that literally lies about what was going on in Ukraine. 
CNN said, we will not broadcast that. It's a violation. There's, there, there actually is a law. It was passed in 2002. There's a law that says that you can't run ads on media, political ads, that explicitly, overtly contain lies. You can't do it. And the House of Representatives passed a law that would extend that to electronic media, to things like Facebook and you know websites and things like that. Mitch McConnell, Moscow Mitch, will not consider even a debate of that law on the floor of the Senate. And meanwhile, Judd Legum over at uh, popular.info, uh, he lays out what's going on, how Facebook has just taken Trump's money and publishing his lies, and millions and millions of people are hearing and seeing them. It's remarkable. Back with your calls after the break. Zoe in Encino, California. Hey, Zoe, what's up? Hi, Tom. How are you this morning? Concerned, but otherwise well. I hope you are, too. You know, I hold the same thought. I'm very concerned. I am a retired licensed family therapist, and I did read several books on what's going on, and a book that was written by, well, contributed by 27 psychiatrists. Mm -hmm. This man is in danger to himself and to others, and we're talking about the 25th Amendment. What stops us from going that road along with Nancy Pelosi's road? The 25th Amendment has to begin. What triggers the 25th Amendment is one of two things. Either the vice president writes a letter to Congress saying that he believes that the president has been incapacitated, or a majority of members of the president's cabinet write a letter to that uh, effect. And I'm well, not, not, I'm not holding work. my breath for either one of those things. I agree, but it's very hard to go through schooling and graduate school and licensure. It's a 3,000-hour internship above graduate school and have to see these children being torn apart from their parents. Oh, yeah. It's, it's just wrenching. And it's like, why did I become a therapist? That's the quandary that I'm at. And the day that he pulled this whole thing off, I called Child Protective Services in three states, and I got nothing from them. I called the Red Cross, because what I wanted to do, at least get teddy bears and other stuffed animals and coloring books and crayons. So what I want to say to the audience is, number one, we are Americans. The last four letters of our name is I can. And if it's going to take us getting out on the street and marching, so be it. But we have to get off our damn phones and we have to start taking action because that's what I think it's going to take. Yeah, you've got uh, Sean applauding you here, Zoe. (laughs) I'm with you. And, and, And by the way, that's so wonderful. You're trying to send teddy bears to the kids at the same time that the Trump administration was in court arguing that they didn't have to provide them with mattresses or toothbrushes. That's how obscene this is. Zoe, I got to run, but thank you for the call uh, and for your passion. We'll be back. You're listening to Tom Hartman. 
Bloomberg reports there's an increasing number of people concerned about their wealth due to the fear we may be entering a larger economic crisis than 2008. If you've been paying attention, you know the Dow recently had its sixth largest point loss in history, and the stock market continues to show extreme volatility. Meanwhile, central bank gold purchases have risen to a six-decade high, sending gold prices higher. CNBC and the World Gold Council reports Russia and China are swapping out U.S. dollars from their own portfolios, investing in safer, more liquid assets like gold. And what makes things even more suspicious, the U.S. Federal Reserve reportedly holds the most gold of all central banks. What's everyone getting ready for? If you share the gut feeling that something is soon to go south with the global economy, call my friends at ITM Trading at one own gold Proper gold and silver strategy will help secure your entire wealth portfolio. Call ITM Trading at one own gold Gold. Ask them for their free gold protection guide and secure your wealth while you still can. That's 1-888-OWNGOLD. Bob in Portland. Bob, what's on your mind today? Constitution, Tom. Uh, yeah. I'm thinking that when they wrote high crimes and misdemeanors, it just dawned on me today, uh, as I was thinking about, well, they, they knew what a crime was. So well, at that time, there were there were no crimes. There was no code of federal regulations. The Constitution had not been ratified by the states, and no federal laws had been passed. I mean, if you go back and you read the discussions that Madison kept a record of, particularly the discussions in mid-July, July 20th was the big day where they discussed 1787 in Philadelphia, where they discussed uh, impeachment. Their intention when they said high crimes was misuse or maladministration of high office. So using, well, using your high office for personal profit or using it in a way that's so incompetent that you're endangering the, the uh, life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness of the American citizens. But, Tom, they were under England's laws. They knew what a crime No, they weren't. Was. At that point, we had already won the Revolutionary War. We had been operating under the Articles of Confederacy for several years, and it wasn't working out, basically, and that's why, you know, we had to either become a federal republic or become 13 independent nations. So what's the See, point they, you're trying they, to make here, Bob? They had local laws. They had local laws. Oh, certainly. They knew what a crime, they knew what a crime was. They right. knew what being indicted was. Yeah. So while, yeah, you're right, that Constitution wasn't enforced at the time they wrote it, they knew what they were talking about, and therefore, I'm just debating with Barr, this idea that a president can't be indicted oh, I see. doesn't really hold water. No, it doesn't. Uh, and that's what the judge said in Washington, D.C. a couple days ago. And, you know, it's, I mean, these are just opinions by the Office of Legal Counsel, one in 2000, or 1999, I guess it was, maybe it was early 2000, and, you know, in the, in the Clinton's Office of Legal Counsel, and he was in, you know, f he faced impeachment. And the other was from Nixon's Office of Legal Counsel, and, and Nixon was facing impeachment. In both cases, these were coming out of a Justice Department that was being run in the Nixon's case by John Mitchell, who ended up spending 19 months in prison for the crimes he committed. And in Clinton's case, I don't recall who the Attorney General was at that time, but this was his Office of Legal Counsel. I agree with you, Bob, on that point. I absolutely agree with you. The point that I was trying to make is that it doesn't have to be an actual crime crime, that high crimes means you know, misuse of office. And, but but right. spot on. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I get, I, now I get what you're saying, and I completely agree with it. Kevin in Olympia, Washington. Hey, Kevin, what's on your mind today? Impeachment's on my mind. And if, okay, here's my question. If Trump's assuming he'll be impeached, and if he's convicted, what happens to all of his staff and the people that support him? And I guess I, there's, I, I keep thinking about it as I've been waiting. And 
can they now be subpoenaed and compelled to testify? Do they lose their immunity? Uh, and especially what if he refused to leave the office? Yeah, there's a whole bunch of different pieces to that question, Kevin. First of all, if Trump is impeached by himself, then Mike Pence becomes president. Pence then can make the choice of whether to keep or, or discard any of the members of his staff with regard to presidential privilege. To the best of my knowledge, that evaporates. Although, you know, this is something that would have to be tossed to the courts because you actually do want the president to be able to seek advice and counsel without fear that what he says will someday be published in the New York Times. I mean, that's a legitimate concern. On the other hand, you want the president to be held to account if he commits crimes or if he's trying to even trying to conspire to commit crimes. So well, there's a delicate path or whatever. So, you know, we'll just see how it plays out. Peter, listening to WBAI in New York City. Hey, Peter, what's up? How are you doing, Tom? Good. It's on your mind. Bit nervous here. I'm going to preface what I'm what I'd like to say by by quoting Chomsky or paraphrasing what Noam Chomsky said a while back that the Republican Party is the largest and most notorious criminal organization around. Yeah, certainly in my lifetime, I, they're right up there with the mafia. A much bigger. I think they've they've they've. I think they are now. Mafia. I don't think they were yeah. when the when the mob was taken. You know, when the mob killed Jack Kennedy in 1963, I think they were larger and more powerful than the Republican Party, but I think the roles have, have reversed. And now we've got a mobster in the White House. Worse, I think we have a deranged uh, man-child Caligula. I can envision this, and I'm hoping that there is still hope that if push comes to shove, that he won't declare martial law based upon some sort of shock doctrine, Reich, uh, American version of the Reichstag fire. Because right. he's capable of doing anything, and if push comes to shove, if it's not martial law, will he incite violence in the streets from, from what's been... He's already doing that. I mean, look at what happened in El Paso. You had over 20 people shot to death because they were Hispanics, because Trump has been raging against Hispanics ever since he first announced his candidacy. I mean, you know, that, that guy was a Trump follower. It's, you know, there already is this, you know, blood in the streets, uh, frankly, as a consequence of this. Do you actually believe that the 2020 election will actually be a real election that's not completely rigged on the Republican side and just to show, uh, basically there for show? We know that elections have been stolen by Republicans for decades now. We know that one of the most effective tools that they've been using, particularly since the late 90s, has been kicking people off the voting rolls in state after state, that this has been a multi-state effort. Uh, it's happening in about 30 states. Uh, you know, you had Chris Kobach with cross-check, interstate cross-check doing this. You've got individual states doing it. We saw this in the lead-up to the uh, 2016 election where Hillary Clinton lost these four states by a combined 81,000 votes. And in those states in Wisconsin, Michigan, Ohio, and Pennsylvania, in each one of those states, over 100,000 people had been removed from the voting rolls just before the election. We saw a half million people removed from the voting rolls in Georgia just before the guy who did it became governor over Stacey Abrams. So, no, I don't think it's going to be a free and fair election, not by a long shot, Peter. And I think that, you know, we're, we're already seeing the Trump administration or the Trump campaign 
lying in ads on Facebook. I'm expecting that, you know, and, and, and we're probably going to be soon seeing more. Seth Abramson says it's not just Russia, it's actually a coalition of Russia, some of the right wingers in Israel, the United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, that, you know, they've all basically gotten together and conspired to make Donald Trump president for their own benefit and Turkey. So what we've got to do is the only way the Democrats do win elections now is you know, if the Republicans are going to steal 5% of the vote or, or suppress 5% of the vote, we have to turn out 7% of the vote or 8% or 10 or 12%. We've got to double and triple down until we've got enough power, that is, take control of the Senate and the White House, that we can pass laws that will restore good governance to the United States, to the extent that we ever had it. My fear is, and I'm hoping that I'm wrong, but by my, my perception, trying to see a bigger picture historically, is that we've already slipped over the, the edge into fascism. It's just not called that. I think there's about a 10% chance that you're right. The one thing and, that, uh, that I think that could take us back is a, is a crisis. A crisis will flip us in one of two directions, and whether it's a military crisis, you know, whether it's World War III, or whether it's an economic crisis, a repeat of the Great Depression, or even a repeat of the crash of 2007-8 uh, or 8-9, we have to keep in mind that in 1932, when America was electing Franklin Roosevelt, Adolf Hitler was rising to power in Germany. Both countries were badly, badly, badly hit by the Great Depression. Germany I'm not chose comparing to... Donald Trump to Hitler, so I don't want to be misquoted on that if it ever comes up. But the situation and the circumstances are very similar, and something like a Reichstag fire, American style, or internationally promoted by Trump, would serve the Republicans and his interests. Oh, very, and it did well. on 9-11 in 2001. That was, that was George Bush's Reichstag fire, and I wrote about this, and, and in fact, uh, published a book about this called uh, We the People. And yeah, I am very concerned about this too, Peter. Peter, I got to move along, but thank you for the call. Will in Broomfield, Colorado. Hey, Will, what's up? First of all, Tom, when you're coming back to Denver, I'm holding in my hands the last hours of ancient sunlight. I've been looking for it forever. You must autograph it. Okay, we'll have to we'll have to organize a, a book signing in Denver. I'm I'm totally up with that, or fine with that, or okay. down with that, or however you say. That's my main. Getting back to my main point, we were talking about worst case scenarios, and in 1992, I was attending law school at CU Boulder, and Archibald Cox came as a visiting professor. Whoa. Yes, and I took both classes. They were wonderful classes. I learned a lot. But, of course, the anecdotes were the real reason I attended the classes. And Mr. Cox said that when he was a special prosecutor, his greatest fear was that Nixon would resist so much. The the state scenario was U.S. Marshals who would be be delivering subpoenas and and enforcing the special prosecutor's orders, getting into a gun battle with Secret Service agents White House. was his worst fear. Whoa. And back then, back 30-plus years ago, the rate is preposterous. Yeah, and there was speculation that that Nixon wouldn't leave the White House. Ultimately, that's not what happened. Yeah, but, But, but back then, it was an outrageous scenario. Now... Not so much. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And this is where, you know, we just need to 
put as much support as we can behind Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats and the people who are trying to do the right thing. And the few Republicans who do come out, I mean, we Justin Amash in Michigan, for example, has come out and said, yeah, Trump shouldn't just be investigated. He should be impeached. And that was based on the Mueller report. So, you know, we need to support them, too, to the extent that, you know, we, we can hold our breath or bite our tongue or whatever. But, Will, I, I uh, thanks for that story. That's shocking. Amazing. Elizabeth in West Hollywood, California. Hey, Elizabeth, what's up? Hi. A, a lot of valid complaints against Trump. And one that has not been addressed is I think he needs an evaluation for Alzheimer's. When he slurred the words United Sister, yeah. that's only one of many times he's done that, and that's usually in the patient. And considering his father had Alzheimer's, I think he's really in line for it, or he already has the beginning of yeah, it. Yeah, although, and you know, my mother had Alzheimer's. I know what that uh, deterioration looks like firsthand, and I'm not so much seeing that. I, You know, there have been a couple of times, two or three times, where he has suddenly started slurring words, and I've always assumed that what he's having are microstrokes, these TIAs, transient ischemic events, or uh, whatever. Yeah microstrokes but i don't know he's not going to get evaluated though elizabeth i guarantee you it's not going to happen i realize that but i think it needs to be out there because yeah it's a serious problem yeah oh it's it's particularly a serious problem when this guy's got the codes to the nuclear bombs and when he's when he's uh, well like we just saw what he just did with turkey where he said to erdogan yeah sure you want to go slaughter the kurds our allies the guys who fought on our behalf the guys who are holding ninety thousand isis prisoners sure go ahead no problem today he's saying well we're not endorsing their slaughtering the kurdish children but it's going on as we speak. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Marie in Atlanta, Georgia. Hey, Marie, what's on your mind? Thanks for taking my call. We've talked a lot about things that people are doing in terms of voting security and elections and cybersecurity. But there's one aspect of elections that has not been properly discussed publicly, and that is those microaggressions that happen at the actual polls and the laws that support them and protect them. For example, at a recent runoff election, there was a sign specifically quoting sections of the sheriff's authority at a polling place. It did not reflect any indication of where it came from, didn't indicate that it was issued by the local election board or by the sheriff's office. But a reasonable person would have interpreted that as some. Oh, there have been billboards all over Alabama, Mississippi, and I, I believe a few other southern states. I'm not sure if this happened in Georgia. You can reality check me that have a picture of a cop or a badge and the signs, you know, quotes from the law that basically says if you, quote, vote illegally, end quote, you can go to prison for years. And people don't know what vote illegally means. And it just scares the hell out of people, particularly anybody who's, you know, A, a person of color or B, a person who's ever been in trouble with the law and they just don't show up to vote. Exactly. And so when it happens at the polling place, it is protected by laws that are on the books. And I know in Georgia and in Tennessee, where it says you cannot record, do audio or video recording in a polling place. But 
that polling place, the threshold of it is far from any voting machine, far from any place where you could determine what someone was actually voting. So that's one of those things that we, we definitely need to get on top of. Yeah, amen. And and Stacey Abrams is all over this kind of stuff, by the way, Marie, uh, you know, who, from your state, from Georgia, and uh, has a heck of a political future. But it is, this is one of the biggest issues that we face right now is the actual theft of our election and our elections. And in fact, I have a book coming out about that next spring. Jeez, <laughs> oh, not to pitch a book, I, that's not my point. But anyway, this is a huge issue. And it's why we have to get active. Get out there, get active, tag, you're it. Because democracy is not a spectator sport. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.